Hi, this is Peter Purvis. You're listening to the Sirens of Audio. Hope you enjoy what you're going to hear. You're listening to the Sirens of Audio, the podcast that explores the universe of Doctor Who and the audio media. My name is Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day, audiophiles. Good to be here. And just a reminder, if you're watching us on YouTube, just uh, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and make sure you subscribe to us on your podcast feed too, if you're listening to us that way. Uh, Great to have your support. Thank you for that. We've got a good show lined up today, Philip. We do indeed. Looking forward to it as always. Tell us about it. Well, today we have Elliot Chapman coming to speak to us. So people may know him. He um, took over the role of Michael Craze. So Ben Jackson, of course, a favourite companion. First of the modern, modern companions that um, the, the producers decided to introduce with William Hartnell, Ben and Polly from the swinging 60s. And so Michael Craze played him very successfully for about 12 months or so. And unfortunately, Michael Craze passed away with a tragic accident, actually in a pub he was running, and so was never able to come back and do any Big Finish. So for a long time, Big Finish wasn't recasting, and then finally decided it was time to. And I guess so, most fans know what the accident was, but what was it? He fell down a flight of steps. So he was just, yeah, in his, oh, his wow. pub, he fell down the steps. and um, yeah. that's, that's terrible. Yes, it's awful. Okay. So Elliot came in and, and started doing... Uh, ben Jackson from uh, The Yes Men, which was an early advent, the very first early adventures uh, written by Simon Gurrier, wasn't it? It was uh, indeed. And it, I, I don't think he was originally intended to become a regular to start with, but he ended up being put, giving more, being given more and more to do throughout both the early adventures and the Companion Chronicles. So, done quite a few stories now. How many has he done, Philip? Uh, that's a good question. I'm just looking at uh, 12. 12 oh, stories as, as Ben? 12. It's Ben's. 12 is Ben. So okay. six of those are early adventures and four of those were companion chronicles. So, yeah. Annika so that makes, just... that makes 10. Yes, 10. <laughs> <laughs> I say 12. You did. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yes. He has done a couple of other things too. I know he's done at least one uh, fourth Doctor story. Oh, 11. There we go. We split the difference. He's okay. done five companion chronicles. Five companion chronicles. Six, and six early adventures. Early adventures and one fourth Doctor adventure, but not as Ben, different character. Yes. Okay, so in preparation for this, Philip, I listened to um, The Forsaken, uh, which was the second early adventures release. And it was a really interesting one, set in Singapore during World War Two. Not only was it a historical, but it kind of merged the base under siege concept with uh, Ben meeting his father, uh, who was the same physical age as him at that particular time. So uh, a very, very interesting story, a little bit more involved than the first early adventures, which was the Yes Men for, for Elliot to play. So uh, I, I really thought that was uh, that was a great one uh, to, to check out. 
because I, I like I like those kind of pseudo historicals. Uh, which one did you listen to, Philip, to get well, yourself ready? Yeah, well, I actually listened to the Home Guard, so I was just curious to have a listen to that. And once again, it, it's it, it's interesting what they've done with Ben. I mean, Ben is a bit of a two dimensional character in the TV show. I mean, I like him; he's a he's a likable guy, you, you, you know, but he's just hasn't got a lot of depth that they really managed to pull out. They won't really do that much with companions at that point. So it's just seeing that they're actually trying to fill out the companions a lot more. And so some of the things that Ellie gets to do is good. So yeah, now I'm looking forward to talking to him. Okay. So to lead us in, uh, because The Forsaken is the earlier one, I'll throw in a trailer for um, The Home Guard a little later, Uh, but I'll throw in a trailer for The Forsaken and we'll come back in a moment with Elliot Chapman. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, The Forsaken. I'm the Doctor. Uh, This is Ben, Polly, uh, Jamie. Pleased to meet you. I'd better take you to the hotel. The boat's unlikely to get here for another day at least, I'm afraid. Oh, dear. Just so long as the Japanese don't get here first. Japanese? They're advancing through Singapore. Total blooming disaster from what I hear, but we should be evacuated before they get this far. Private Jim Jackson, but everyone calls me Jacko. Actually, we have our own Jacko, don't we, Ben? Not now, Pom. What's wrong with you, Ben? You look like you've seen a ghost. Doctor, Ben, there is someone. Look, over there. Where? What did you see, Pom? I don't know. A figure, barely more than a shadow. Is it that what was worrying you, Doctor? Worrying me? You said you could feel there was something wrong. Uh, Yes, yes, possibly. Very possibly. Oh, get down! Oh, it sounds silly, but it, it looked like death. death. Big finish. We love stories. Death don't hang about, you know. He's got things to do. Well, audio files is uh, great to keep interviewing different companions. The companion has an important role uh, for keeping the story going with the Doctor. And often recasting companions is one of the hardest jobs Big Finishers does. And certainly when uh, it came time to recast um, one of the first Doctor and second Doctor favourite companions, uh, Big Finish looked to Elliot Chapman. And so, Elliot, welcome aboard. It's great to have you to Science of Audio. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, do you, just do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself first. Where, where are you? And yeah, just a little bit about who you are, where you are. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, that, that question you get asked so many times, then your brain goes, "Who am I? What am I?" Um, <laughs> it's, it's that philosophical thing. Um, well, yes, I'm Elliot Chapman. I'm. I live in the UK. I live in uh, uh, Bristol, which is about 120 miles from uh, London, uh, which is looking particularly uh, grey at the moment, and you may even hear. The sirens are coming to get me. It's wow. the bills. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I'm that wasn't for the theme to start. Whatever that is, is okay. They come um, to take you away, haha. It could be, yeah, it could be. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, what am I? Who am I? Uh, well, I guess most people who might be tuning in to this will know me as Ben. So, yes, I'm an actor after a fashion. A- actor after a fashion, because I've noticed that sometimes you, you refer to yourself as semi retired. Um, what, what that's actually quite a, yeah that's yeah um that that really pretty much stemmed from the fact i mean this actually happened before the pandemic as well i had um uh that strange thing that happens sometimes you get a, a very 
good moment in terms of, um, because obviously all acting is freelance work. I had a very good year in 2018, which was um, equal with one other year, the most I ever worked. Um, just in terms of being incredibly lucky in one year and just managing to get gig after gig after gig. Uh, it happens very rarely. Um, but at the end of that particular year thinking, I actually been away from home and away from my partner now for eight months out of the 12 that exist in a year. And I think it was a point where I thought I, the chances of having a year like that in 2019 would probably have been low anyway, um, because no one's that lucky. Um, but I, I did think to myself, being a kind of young itinerant actor is great when you are young and you don't really have any other responsibilities or you, you've not found other things in your life that mean a great deal to you. Um, you're just you and yourself and with a, um, you travel light and so on. But uh, I thought, no, this is, this is a sort of a bit of an interference in the other part of my life. So I thought, well, I'll have, I'll go into a semi-retirement. I'll say to my agent, can we try and do fewer things as if I'm someone who's massively in demand. Um, and uh, then as 2019 wore on, I thought, actually, I'm sort of happy in the place I'm in because I've got a recording studio near where I live and I do quite a bit of work for them. I'm still connected to my old drama school, the Bristol Vic Theatre School, um, and I do work for them occasionally. So I thought, well, let's, uh, at this point, let's have a hiatus. Let's go into semi-retirement and then see what happens. Of course, what happened was entirely unexpected. So I'm sort of still in that state, but I imagine most of the rest of the world is as well. So we'll see what happens when things uh, take a turn for the better, I think. Okay, so you're Bristol born and bred? No, no, I, I am from the southwest part of, of the country. Um, I was right down in um, uh, the southwest uh, in um, Plymouth, well, just outside of Plymouth. That's where I was born. And I was originally, I mean, I was, I, after I went to university, because I, I did university before I did drama school, uh, I was a journalist to begin with. Um, <laughs> journalist, I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, and then I lived in London for a while and I went to Bristol simply because the Bristol Vic Theatre School was there and I um, auditioned for them. Um, but I really quite fell in love with the place. I, I think probably because it, because I'm a country bumpkin really. I mean, I was uh, born in a, 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 a semi-rural part of the country and having lived in London, Bristol is almost like a sort of halfway point between the two. You have some of the relaxed atmosphere of living in the country, but you're still technically in a city. So I think it it meshed with me rather better than London. Yeah. So what led you to you decided first to be a journalist? Well, that was um, <laughs> I always I always actually wanted to to um, go into the theatre and the various media, hopefully as an actor, but. And I, I even had the great fortune of having very encouraging parents, because I know sometimes actors say that their parents are like, they haven't said, don't do that. Um, go off and do something where you can actually, you know, earn some money Eight. and have a standard of life. Um, but they were really, really encouraging, God bless them. But um, it was me. I, I got to a point in my teenage years where I thought, I don't think this is a good idea. The only other thing I had something of an aptitude for was stringing together a coherent sentence. And I had 
teachers who said, oh, maybe you should read English at um, university and, and, and with a mind to journalism, because then there's something kind of concrete at the end of it, which I did. Uh, and I started working on local newspapers and local radio. That was my sort of first stepping stone. But I quickly found that maybe the thing that makes a good journalist makes a bad actor. Uh, I think what makes a good journalist is to have a thick skin. And I really don't. And probably one of the few things in life where having a thin skin works is being an actor, because it's very easy access then to um, <laughs> joy, tears, excitement um, when playing a part. I found it very hard as a journalist because I, I just psychologically always felt too involved in stories. And if stories became very serious or they were very emotional, oh, it, would, it, it didn't, didn't do me too good. Um, so then after journalism, I thought, I think I should get out of this. I, I don't think I'm, I'm a good fit. Uh, I was still prevaricating somewhat. And I, uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and do some teaching. So I, I, had, uh, I did some teacher training. And then finally, the, the voice that had always been quietly pushed away um, just got louder and louder. And I thought, well, you're still young enough to try out for a drama school. And my thinking was, why not go for the most prestigious, most highly acclaimed drama schools you can think of? Because if they tell you you're useless, it'll put it to sleep. It'll, it'll end it. Because I, I don't think I would have been that brave otherwise. Uh, but I was very, very fortunate in that one or two gave me an offer. And Bristol Vic was my favourite uh, of, of the ones I went to. It just seemed to click with me. And then I ended up there. And um, yeah, and, and then became an actor, uh, doing other things along with it, because you kind of have to, unless you're in that magical 2% of, of the acting population, which really they only have to you know, go from gig to gig to gig. Yeah, so that's, that, that's, uh, that's how that sort of all happened. <laughs> so, so what sort of work do you like doing best of all? Stage or voice or have you done much film stuff? No, I've never. I've, I've done some television, but I've, I've never done film apart from you know, kind of very low budget um, stuff, which you know, short film and um, and so on. But um, I think it's probably <laughs> what happens is you get into one media, and you think about another one. <laughs> so when you're on the stage, you're thinking, "Oh, wouldn't it be lovely now to go on and do a lovely voice job where I don't have to worry about uh, what I look like, or I don't have to worry too much about uh, you know all the physicality. I can just concentrate everything into into the vocal performance." And then when you're in a recording uh, studio, you're thinking, "Oh, it'd be really nice about now to be wearing a costume and uh, being out in front of an audience." And then when you're there, you're thinking, "Oh, it'd be lovely to work with a lens and all, all the, the the technical side of the brain that you need to work with lenses." So, it, but I guess the plus side of that is if you've got a butterfly kind of mind, which I think I do have, that the attention span is, you know, virtually non-existent. Then being able to flit between them is quite nice. The downside is that I think probably what you, well, not even probably, it is what happens is it can become very easy to be, the industry starts to associate you with one particular media and thinks that's what you do. And you can end up in a situation where you go for something and go, oh, I thought you did, you, you were, for example, a voice actor. It's like, well, I am, but I am trained and have experience in other media as well. Um, so one has to be somewhat watchful of that. Um, so, unless, of course, the niche 
is something that uh, appeals to the particular actor and then they they dig in and that's what they become known for but uh, i think if you want to keep going around it you've you, you've got to almost say to yourself okay the next thing we'll try and go for will be on the stage and then the next thing we'll try and go for will be um with a television company or whatever so what are some of the works that you're most happy with what are the things that you think yep that's what i was happy there that was successful for me because i'm i'm not an actor with a a very big profile, just a jobbing actor. Um, when I've sometimes been fortunate enough to do uh, commercially bigger things, um, it's usually maybe just a few lines here or there. But even if the um, remuneration isn't always uh, of the greatest, sometimes the best experiences are in uh, things that are out of the glare of the of, of the mainstream, if you like, because um, you don't need to have a name attached to you. And um, it, one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in that regard was actually down in Bristol, uh, which meant I didn't have to travel too far for work. And it was a, a version of, a staged version of uh, Liz Lockhead's Dracula. So her adaptation of Stoker's novel. Um, probably the most interesting and complex adaptation of the novel by anyone. It's a, it's a fascinating piece of work. And I was very, very fortunate to be cast out of type. I think that's the other problem. It's not only the media that you get associated with, it's also the, um, there is of course a great deal of type casting because there is a surplus of us as actors. So you can, if you're a casting director or a producer or something, you can get exactly what you want. Um, so very often actors aren't cast out of what they are perceived to be very often. And I went for the audition expecting to either be seen as Dr. Seward or even possibly Jonathan Harker. And the director asked me to read for Renfield. I thought, oh, hey, oh, this is good and took a punt and uh, I got the part of Renfield, which um, of course then, because I was uh, doing something that I wouldn't normally have been seen for, there was the excitement of this, this kind of character doesn't come my way very often. Um, so I'm gonna absolutely make the most of it. And the, the thing itself was really successful with audiences. They, I've never been in a play where the audience um, was so responsive sometimes negatively we had five people leave on the same night <laughs> but that was because it, it i think there was an expectation that because it was staged it wouldn't perhaps be terribly frightening and of course audiences are so much more sophisticated but there were parts of it that were quite horrifying and we had an illusionist working with us and i think it was a bit much for five members of the audience that night. But otherwise, this incredibly positive response where audiences would even sort of stay around afterwards to talk to the actors as we left because they found it such an extraordinary experience. So I think that probably goes down as the, um, yeah, the really satisfying job, yeah. The last uh, 12 months has been uh, a bit more than 12 months now. It's been a very interesting time for the whole world. You guys are, opening up a little bit more there. Philip in Sydney's just gone back into lockdown. Um, how's how's the last 12 months been for you? What have you been up to? Have you been doing work during that time or? Yes, I, I was fortunate enough that um, 
I was, I mean, one of the things that happened was my, my old drama school, the Bristol of it, they needed to do their auditions for intake of a new year group of students via Zoom, which is completely different. Normally a, a person would come to the school, get a feel for the school, meet an audition panel, do their pieces. And of course that couldn't happen. So the audition process, which normally takes about three months, four months maybe, took closer to nine because you can only see so many people uh, in a Zoom call. So I was asked if I would um, be on the audition panel for that, which I did, and that, that, was, that was great. I mean, it's extraordinary, the, um, the, the people out there and, and uh, you know, young people out there with just this immense talent. And you think, oh, my God, sometimes you think I want to take you all. <laughs> um, and, you've, and then you've got to go through the selection process. So I did that for many months, which meant I could work from home. Uh, which was which was incredibly useful, but uh, as I said earlier, I have a, a recording studio about half hour from me, and uh, they were able to to keep running uh, very strictly. Uh, they would only allow one actor in at a time, and uh, the studio manager was cleaning things all the time, kettle, door handles, and I'm pleased to say they managed to survive it. And they're now in a situation where they've been able to extend it to two actors um, in, in the recording uh, studio building, obviously in separate areas now. Um, so yes, there is a sense that um, uh, things are, are progressing. I pretty much had the year, well, nearly two years, um, more or less at home. Um, unfortunately for my partner, she, she is in a vulnerable group, asthmatic. So we made the decision to, um, to uh, uh, lock down as much as possible, even when there wasn't an official lockdown. I think it's make or break for a partnership. Unfortunately, we, we sort of found we, oh, we do get on. So <laughs> had a year of, um, when we're not working, she was very lucky to be able to work from home as well with her with hers um catching up on all those films we said we'd watch and never got around to all those old television series lots and lots of reading listening to albums of an evening you know um doing lots of things like that which you know it's been okay yeah it's been, it's been fine it's, it's unfortunate that it was this context in which we had were able to do those things but in a, in a very selfish way it was almost nice to, to go on a kind of hiatus from the real world for a bit sort of mixed feelings about that do you have a couple of do you have a couple of favorite albums that you were listening to i'm big into music myself so always keen to know what others others like listening to it ranges around <laughs> i sometimes think that because my ta my taste is so eclectic that i must have no taste you know <laughs> no that's not um, true not so true um, we uh, let me see. Uh, we ended up doing a thing where I would. It was almost like pulling names out of a hat. So we would get a choice each. So my partner has introduced me to quite a bit of dance music that I missed out on, um, and I. <laughs> yeah, we've been raving around the living room. <laughs> and, um, I think I've introduced her to a lot of Germans <laughs> because I've got a bit of a love for uh, 1970s sort of German electronic music. So she now knows who Harmonia and Kluster and um, she always knew who Kraftwerk were and uh, Neu. 
Um, so I've got her into the Germans. <laughs> Do you listen to Can as well? Oh yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. quite so yeah. electronic. Yeah, Can 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 is almost a state of mind. I think <laughs> you've got to be in the right state of mind. But uh... when uh, Damo Suzuki toured tours the world, uh, meeting up with musicians all over the place, and he came here where I am. I'm in Tasmania, oh, wow. and he he came here one year, and uh, I was doing a radio show at the time, and. We, we got him into the studio with us for uh, a couple of hours for our show. It was fa oh fascinating God. talking to that guy. Yeah. He's, I bet. Yeah. Oh, and uh, to have such a legend of, of Krautrock in the studio with us, it was great. Oh, my, my, my wife had this amazing moment as well. Where there's a, a festival in the UK called the Blue Dot Festival, which takes place at Droddle Bank. And Krautwerk were playing. And she was introduced to this fella, um, and uh, oh, that's it. the connection was okay. This is a Doctor Who connection here. Craftwork were playing, but the BBC Radiophonic Workshop were also playing. And um, she went to the Radiophonic Workshop gig, um, say under the Jodrell Bank Radio Telescope. And she casually said to the guy next to her, she "said Oh, it's kind of appropriate, really, because poor old Tom Baker fell off that, of course, at the end of his run of Doctor Who." And the fellow next to her said, did he? And she went, yeah, he said, well, that's interesting. He said, because um, my, father, uh, my father's company was responsible for the knitting of that scarf for that year. She looked at him, what? And he produced for her a photograph on his phone of, this guy's about early 40s now, of, uh, of him at about eight years old with this big purplish, burgundy scarf around him he said yeah my my father ran a knitting company and we were hired to do it based on the design presumably the, the bbc designer uh, we had to produce three scarves um two intact and one which uh was partly torn i don't know why that was um he said we were and because my brother and i were so young we were invited to the to the set when they were given to Tom Baker and um, got to see some of the um, recording. And he had all these little faded photographs of, of him and his brother uh, uh, going to um, BBC Television Centre and meeting Tom Baker. And just from a chance comment, by <laughs> well, there you go. Doctor Who and um, German electronic music will follow you around everywhere because of me. <laughs> we, we always uh, we always credit June Hudson. Uh, like we probably imagine June Hudson sitting there with knitting needles doing, but obviously she just designed it and uh, and sent it out to the company to to oh, manufacture. So don't, don't do the hard work. Just you, you do the design and then get someone else to actually knit one in pearl one. You know. <laughs> who, who would have thought that that a kraut rock conversation would lead to Tom Baker scarf? That's, that's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of speaking of Doctor Who, I hear that your Doctor growing up was um, Sylvester McCoy, right? Yeah, I, I just I, I mean I was quite young, um, so I did get to see Colin, but um, a couple of years makes an enormous difference when you're a child, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so the Sylvester McCoy years. Um, yeah, they're, they're much, uh, I think, uh, more embedded in my sort of childhood memory, yeah. yeah. So how did you come to work for Big Finish? What's the connection there? I did it when I was at, in my last year of drama school. Um, they, they sort of said to a few of us, four of us, as it was, 
I don't know if they were trying to tell us we 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 um we had faces for radio or what, but they did say you know you four do seem to have uh, a bit of a potential, shall we say, with your voice work, with your um, uh, acting for radio and so on. So we did this thing called the Carlton Hobbs uh, bursary, which is the the BBC run it, and um, four students from all the major drama schools, they um, they enter into what is effectively a competition. And um, you, the, the, the winner, if you like, uh, of which goes on to work for the BBC um, radio drama channel, Radio 4, I think it's for five months. Just on whatever project comes on, you become part of that company of actors. And, and uh, now we actually won that year. And uh, it was my partner who uh, took the five month uh, uh, prize. I put it all down to me. She really shouldn't take any credit there. Um, uh, and uh, I was sort of then off, you know, graduating and, and trying to find work elsewhere. But uh, one of the people who uh, trained me in radio said, have you heard of Big Finish? Because they're a very good company to work for. They're very much worth sending your uh, CV and a, and a letter to, like <laughs> uh, graduate student actors seem to spend all their time doing, begging for work. Uh, and as it happened, um, this, this particular teacher uh, knew Lisa Bauman. And they ran into each other. Uh, and my name must have been quite fresh in uh, this, this teacher's mind. And she said, if you do receive a, a, a CV and uh, some sound clips from Elliot Chapman, give them a listen over because I, I think he might be, you know, useful to, you know, to, to have in the back of your mind. And Lisa said, okay, fine. Um, and luckily for me, she happened to listen to some of the stuff I'd done for radio at the time that they were looking for a Ben, the possibility of, of um, doing Ben without Michael Craze. And I just happened to have, as one of my sound clips, a radio play I had done where I was playing a young Cockney lad. So it just did that. Um, and then um, I was doing a play uh, and an email pinged into, into me during a, an interval. We were actually doing the play. And there it was. And uh, I thought, oh, yeah. But then I started to panic. So I thought, how am I going to do it? Because I'm doing this play for months and months and months. And as it turned out, I, I was able to catch a train and into do... Uh, my very first couple of episodes before a matinee show. <laughs> ah, I mean, thank, thank heavens the trains were working and they were running on time that, that particular day because I went up at the morning and I worked to the early afternoon. I made it back very, very fast, did the matinee show and then did the evening show. And uh, we did the, the third and fourth episodes, I think a couple of days later when I wasn't having to do a, well, I didn't have to do a matinee. Uh, so yeah, that's really how that happened. Just a, one of those lovely series of coincidences, really. Were you a bit of a fan of Doctor Who beforehand? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things about the period I think I was growing up on it was although it was sort of coming to an end in its original incarnation, it was actually quite a good time because you'd get a season every year of stories, Colin or Sylvester in my case, but we had a mobile video library that used to come to our street and they had all the early BBC, the old BBC Enterprises uh, 
videos of, of earlier stories, scenes of death or pyramids of Mars or something. And my, my dad used to hire them out for me. So I had this diet of the, the, the stuff before my time. And then when it did stop, I think the early 90s was full of repeats of um, old Bill Hartnell stories. And I remember the BBC did a season of one story per doctor. So I'd say up until about 94-ish, say about 85, 86 to 94, I was really solidly into it, loved it. Then I think a combination of it being off for as long as it was, plus 1994, teenage years really start kicking in. Um, it sort of disappeared for a long time. Popped up a couple of times, I think. Uh, something might have you know, triggered an interest. Oh, I'll go back and look at some old stuff. And then when it came back properly in 2005, I remember being really um, making sure that my Saturday early evenings were clear <laughs> to watch those go out. And, uh, and then when Ben came around, obviously I spent quite a bit of time watching and or listening to the existing or non-existent, but at least existing on sound, uh, Ben and Polly stories. And then it was just very easy to start re-watching bits of the classic series again, which was enormous fun. Yeah, so it's, it's gone and it's ebbed and flowed. <laughs> Had you heard any Big Finish prior to being cast in the role? Yes, I had. Um, uh, when I was first told about Big Finish as a, as a possibility of, um, <laughs> of, of gainful employment, it, it didn't occur to me at the, same, at the time, I guess because maybe 10 years had passed. I didn't recognise the name at first, but then I realised as I was researching them, I, like, I know this. I got one of these, and it was because when I uh, near where I used to live, there was a, a a comic store, and I remembered going into the comic store because they had secondhand records and comics, and I used to get a lot of secondhand records. And I remember going in. There was this huge poster of Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy, and this thing called um, the Sirens of Time, and, and I bought it. Because I thought, because that that was a real nostalgia hit. So I guess that must have been very tail end of the nineties. Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Right there, you go. So and I remembered listening to that with a sort of big grin plastered on my face because I mean, particularly with Colin and Sylvester, they were my doctors from my childhood. Um, so I suddenly realised I had heard this big. I didn't know that they had quite the amount of um, material as as they went on to produce. And, um, yeah. So did you need to audition for the role or Lisa just offered it to you off your tape? It, it was just an offer. I, I, I'm not entirely sure of the, um, of, the, of the narrative of events. I think perhaps other people were listened to um, because in radio and in audio, it's a bit different to television and theatre where you do audition in front of people. This is very much you have your collection of little clips from whatever radio or audio you've done and then it's available to producers and directors and um, casting directors uh, should they be interested it's one of those things you never know you're being listened to um, so it, it for me it felt very out of the blue but I imagine given the um, the importance 
uh, for, for, for Big Finish, because I, I know recasting was not something they entered into lightly. I imagine they listened to other, other actors. I don't know. All, all I know is that uh, Lisa had been given my stuff, as I said, by this uh, teacher of mine, and it was just very, very fortunate that I had, I think, this, this Cockney role <laughs> uh, of this young guy on it. So I just think it was just one of those lovely serendipitous moments, you know, um, where I, I, that, that clip arrived at the right time. There's not much of Ben's stuff around. Were you kind of aware of who he was, though? Yeah, oddly, because um, when I was when I was watching Doctor Who as a child, there wasn't the merchandise around Doctor Who as there is now, of course. But there would occasionally be little bits and bobs. And I remember that my grandmother bought me maybe sort of half a dozen to a dozen of the old um, novelizations. And a couple of them were earlier ones. And there was this character called Ben, and there was this character called Polly. Um, so yeah, I, I knew the name. When the, the part came my way, I, I, I was directed towards the War Machines because that existed completely and it was his debut. But I managed to very easily track down um, uh, all the things that, uh, I mean, thank heavens it all existed on sound. Even though there are only, uh, a few episodes and thankfully now due to um, the animated reconstructions you know, there's, there's more of a, a a sense of complete as much as a, a sense of completeness as you I think you can get <laughs> short of the tapes turning up again um, that helped a great deal but I but as I was doing Doctor Who on audio or I was about to do Doctor Who on audio listening to television stories w was perfect in a way Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, The Yes Men. No one home. No one anywhere, Ben. It's all very hot. You want to investigate. Don't you? Well, no bones broken at least. Uh, and, and we're in. The acting prime designate is on her way here with security. You'll be sent for full data extraction. Can you tell me how she died? Accessing data from CIB. Mekarvos' death was due to myocardial infarction. Oh. I'm back at Colloden. Ah, this time, different. Mekarvos' death was due to an ischemic stroke. Now, hey, let them go. The Prime Designate says that if we advance, she will kill the hostages. You've got to do something. We are following the data extracted from your brain. What was it that killed her? Mekarvos' death was due to malignant neoplasia. A city. A city under the ground. How long have you not been down? The city was established 12.8 years ago, citizen. She died of cancer, a heart attack and a stroke. Yes, citizen. We think you can teach us. We dissect the operative parts of your head. Bring the human. No, 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 no wait. You, you don't need to slice me. I, look, I can tell you what you want to know. Hey, hey, hey. Big finish. We love stories. So what was it like turning up to the studio that first day? You knew no one at all, but you must have had an awareness of who some of the people were. What was, what was your first day like? Well, it was great. Um, yeah, I mean, they're all actors and they're producers, and so everyone's very professional. So, uh, but even beyond that, it, there was a, it was a very warm atmosphere. I mean, there, uh, 
I was a little nervous meeting Annika because um, obviously Ben and Polly are linked. And, um, you know, Mike is someone uh, she not only worked with, but had become a friend. And I found out later that they even done the convention circuit together at times. So they were a proper duo. Um, but uh, I, I think it really helped that. I mean, she's an incredibly um, good hearted child. So it's like, you know, I, I, I felt immediately welcome, but I think probably what helped a little as well was I, I didn't come in with any intention of reinventing the wheel. Um, it, it, I think she was pretty clear that I, I'd done the research and uh, that as far as I was concerned, Mike had laid the, the foundation and I was going to stick as closely to what he had done. I think that 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 probably did help. And Fraser is um, just life and soul of the party. He's a very good. It's interesting as well, because, um, uh, you know, a lot of the atmosphere on a television set or on a radio or in the theatre is determined by the lead. And because Fraser was playing the doctor in addition to um, Jamie, my mind sort of went, well, he's the lead. And if the, the lead is um, affable and creates a good atmosphere and, and, and which Fraser does, um, then, then, it's, then it's a lovely working environment. But it was interesting that he does not see himself as the lead. <laughs> because I admit, I sort of said this in, in passing about, you know, well, you're the lead or something. And he really doesn't see it that way. For him, it's very much an ensemble. But I think that also shows a very positive um, aspect of Fraser Hines, the person that he do, he does the good leading man's job without thinking he's the leading man. And I think that that carries through and we always have a lovely atmosphere. And Lisa was just, um, as director, just so uh, encouraging and uh, giving me the, the latitude to, within the parameters set down by Mike, Michael Craze, to, to try and own it as much as I could, to not feel on the back foot because this was someone else's role before me. So I, I, she was very good at kind of instilling a confidence in, in, in those early performances, yeah. Did you feel that she was, um, uh, being an actor herself, was uh, good to have her as a director in that respect? Yeah, um, the, the, it is probably a truism that um, actors who graduate to be directors um, they, they really, really know what it's like to be directed, having been actors. I find her such a strong director. She navigates the path of it so, so well um, in that we are always up against the clock because you have to do two episodes a day. So there is a point where you've really got to keep going and, 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 and she's got to provide that pace. But there is an enormous trust and I think actually one of the things is when you are pushed for time, I think sometimes directors will go, oh, um, we're pushed for time. That line there, I just think you need to do it like this. And that's not Lisa's way. She'll, um, she'll let you find it. Even if the, the, the clock's running down, she'll trust that the actor can find what it is. And if you get, she'll go, that's what I was looking for. It's bliss to work that way because you feel as though you've achieved something. <laughs> so yeah, she's uh, she's very good. Yeah, I like working with her. Yeah. 
this, the way that you sort of did your role was because you did the first two early adventures together, then a year later was a companion chronicle, then a year after that was another two early adventures. So you're only going in for the odd day here and there. Did you find it was, how did you find going each time in terms of, was there new ground to cover? Was there reestablishing relationships? New things you were trying to do with your character? The, the odd thing was that there was a point, and I think probably because of the uh, the release schedule being the way it is, there was a point where I felt I was there a lot. And then if we did have gaps, I was in the situation of suddenly I, w- I was being invited to conventions. So I was able to see Fraser and Annika and Lisa quite a bit. I found being invited to conventions quite startling, really, because I thought, well, I'm not the original. I'm just a voice. What possible interest could fans have <laughs> in the guy? And, and then I found really just how... Um, there's, there's nothing in Doctor Who which I think is too small uh, to to uh, have a fan's interest. So um, there was a kind of um, momentum that carried through the relationships. And in regards with, to the character, one of the things I found was that um, I, I started to really mark the obvious technical differences uh, that I needed to sort of slightly adjust my performance for because when Mike and Annika and Fraser and Patrick Tratton were doing it on television in the 60s, the television that's so different to the TV of now, um, three walled sets, five cameras, it was more theatre on television, far fewer close-ups because of course close-ups are one of the delights of working on a, a single camera and those cameras were big. Uh, so, uh, and the vision mixing between them. So it was a kind of electronic theatre in a way. Uh, and the performances, given the, 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 the technology, particularly in regards to sound, um, the actors are, are slightly pitching it up uh, to, to allow for that. You fast forward to now, and you've got this very, very high tech, very sensitive microphone, and you're in a booth, and they have complete control over the sound. So I suddenly realized, actually, I need to make sure that as much as I'm trying to follow in the um, in what Mike has laid down, I've got to adjust it slightly for this technology. And one of the things I, I found started to emerge was that uh, my version of Ben, as a result of, of taking into account this technology and these changes, was... Um, a, a little bit more contained, uh, which made him come across as a little bit more vulnerable. So I don't think it's a massive jump, but I always think of Mike's Ben as being the um, the tough Ben. <laughs> and my Ben is probably being the slightly more, um, as I say, vulnerable one, because you, you have to sort of come down a bit, You have to, um, which doesn't really lend itself with that, that kind of, same pitch of attitude that Ben has on television. But I think what also fed into that were the writers on Big Finish were very keen to suggest more interiority with the companions um, than than had perhaps been the case on the television. Because of course they're writing in a context where there is a new series on which characterization has been upped. Big Finish is, it's interesting with their Doctor Who, they almost, have to balance out two quite different iterations. They are doing the classic series, but they are doing the classic series in a context in which the new series is made. 
So I think that what they've done as a result is they've upped the, the characterization of even those established companions. There's more about, as I say, their interiority or their emotional landscape or putting them through a ringer as individuals than perhaps there was on the television in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Were, and that's not to denigrate that period of Doctor Who. That period of Doctor Who was about plots. It was about ideas. Uh, a lot of television back then wasn't quite a, in that uh, those genres wasn't quite as much about characters as it is now. The characterization thing is almost quite new, really. Um, you know, actually taking from prestigious drama and, and so on. Yeah, in in preparation to to speak with you tonight, I listened to The Forsaken today, which is a perfect example of that, where where Ben comes across, or he comes face to face with his father at the same physical age as him. So that, that's an example of the characters themselves having more to them than, um, than they ever had on screen. There was only the companions that we saw on screen. We never saw their relatives or, or anything like that. So that is definitely a new series thing, which is, uh, it's, it's great. And, and the audio medium lends itself perfectly to that kind of de development too. So, um, so yeah, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. It's great. That was an interesting one. Yeah, I do remember that. Because uh, as you say, it's the double whammy. It's not only meeting your father because it was already, oh, it was also established that Ben's father was dead in another story. So it's not already, he's not just meeting your dad who's no, who no longer exists for you in your time. It's meeting him at the same age as you. Mm. Yeah, that was great. That was, that was really um, interesting angle. Yeah. Are there any particular stories or writers that stand out for you? I think I really like Simon Guerrier because I think he does a rather clever thing, which is um, he's very aware that uh, in our case, these stories had to be kind of set around 1966. I don't mean the year 1966. I mean the season of 1966. So it didn't matter if you were off on an alien planet in the far future or whatever. There had to be a sense of the, the tone, the style of a 1966 Patrick Troughton Doctor Who. At the same time, you can't write as if the last 50 odd years hasn't happened. <laughs> and I thought he was always very clever and very witty at, at, at encapsulating some of the anxieties, obsessions, but also the technology of the current era and, 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 and neatly and anachronistically putting it back then. Uh, there's one episode I remember that everyone's using what is effectively um, iPads. He refers to them as, they're referred to in the story as, pass me the flat computer, <laughs> because of course the concept wouldn't be there. But so he, he's very clever at doing those little, little um, uh, asides, which uh, he, he writes about a future that does exist from the perspective of it not knowing it's going to exist. So that, that's great. And then you end up in a kind of Mobius strip <laughs> with, his, uh, with his writing. But I like the outliers a great deal, uh, which is uh, one of his. That was fun. But as an, a, a, an alternative, Guy Adams's The Plague of Dreams, which is a companion chronicle, was um, a real delight because it, it, it went it, it's one of the things that the Companion Chronicles can do. It really broke with um, what expectation is for a Doctor Who story. It gave me this other lovely part to play. And, um, and the last one I did, which was um, with David Warner, which was uh, a bit of a, a prize because <laughs> you were talking earlier about my first day. 
And Fraser was kind of giving me a little rundown on Big Finish and knowing it was my first day. And he started talking about different actors that had been involved. He said, oh, and we've had David Warner. And, and I said, oh my God, David Warner. He said, oh, do you like David Warner? I could notice him smirking a bit. In that <laughs> I didn't know there was a connection between Lisa and David Warner. How could I know? Um, and I'd said something like, I think the man's a walking, talking masterclass. I think that was my, that was the phrase I used. And uh, Lisa said, oh, I'll tell him that tonight over dinner. <laughs> He'll be amused. And of course, I think I went bright red, realising that and Fraser said, but at least you didn't turn around and say, oh my God, he's a terrible actor. <laughs> I went, oh yeah, that's true. Um, I said, but no, God, absolutely not. He's one of my all-time acting heroes. And um, four years later, uh, the lovely Ian Atkins, who, who used to produce the um, Companion Chronicles, he said, I think, I think we've managed to secure David to, to do a Companion Chronicles with you which was simultaneously really exciting and a little unnerving <laughs> because I said, I've admired his work and, 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 and what he does as an actor for an awfully long time. Um, but he was a delight. So that one on a very personal level, because it meant, you know, it's, it's very, it's quite something to act alongside one of the acting heroes. You know? But it's not just here, they get the most amazing actors all through Big Finish. These names just keep coming and just go unbelievable. It's, it is extraordinary. I mean, and, the excitement of um, a guest cast list coming through. You know, who am I working with on this one? Who are we working with on this one? Um, I remember we did, I think it was The Outliers, we were working with Alistair, uh, Alistair Pitry and he was just doing Star Wars. So that was all incredibly exciting. He, I think, um, Rogue One, I think he was in Rogue One. Yes, I think he was, he was doing Rogue One. So we were all somewhat in awe of, <laughs> you know, he was part of this other, um, you know, legendary uh, fantasy series. You know? <laughs> so, so why did you just stop playing Ben? Um, that was sort of connected to um, the general feeling I had in 2019 of, um, after this very, very good year I'd had where I'd worked, worked, worked a lot, I, I am missing home. I am missing being around my partner. Um, it's lovely to work as an actor, um, and you know I do have a mortgage to pay. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I need to for this other aspect of my life. I, it, it, it can't. Um, I can't just always be on the road. And the more I sort of got into that way of thinking, I, you start to think about other things that you do. And I thought, uh, with Big Finish. I've been doing that for four years on and off. I'm probably at the end of my piece of elastic in terms of um, what I can bring to bear. I mean, even though, I, as I've said earlier, I think writers have worked so hard to make those characters uh, even more multifaceted. But it was probably as much as I thought I could bring without starting to um, bend whatever my craze had laid down out of shape a bit. Um, I'd also, as I said, done some conventions by then. But a little voice in my head went, how long, much longer are you going to do this? Are you going to play Ben in two years' time? Five? Ten? Uh, um, uh, and I had a sort of similar feeling about the conventions. Can you see yourself being able to go to them with the same passion and energy 
in five to ten years' time, or are you going to be going through the motions slightly? I know I'm a person who sometimes likes to know where the exit sign is almost on everything in life. And I'm a sort of strong believer in the idea of enjoyable, a a series of enjoyable and intense moments (laughs) rather than trying to drag things maybe past their best. And the more this was sort of going around my head, someone made a throwaway comment to me, which was almost like a signal from the universe. And it was a perfectly innocent comment. They said, um, you do realise you've done almost as many or you've done as many episodes for Big Finish as Michael Craze did for television. And I went, oh, no, I didn't know that. And I thought about it for about half an hour after the person said, and then it was, is it really, really tasteful to carry on in that, knowing that, you know, that's the original, he's the definitive. So I started to think that as well. I thought, I think you've just been given almost like the final little push to make a decision. So it was like, yeah, I'm really pleased with those four years. Uh, maybe I should go before uh, I do something that I don't think was very good. So you say it's no, never, or just no, not now? Oh, I, I, doubt, I doubt strongly that, um, that uh, well, no, I, I, it would be, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't return. Um, I, I mean, I don't think that would be terribly fair on <laughs> Big Finish, to be honest, to have an actor who's constantly, well, I'm stopping, I'm starting again, I'm stopping, I'm starting again, because they've got things to consider and they've got... Uh, They've got a schedule in their head and um, and so on and so forth. So I don't think that would be terribly fair to them if I started to uh, make overtures of, oh, I'd very much like to come back to that part. And frankly, I don't think it's necessary because I think one of the wonderful things about the fact that we are now in a, fa- a phase, an era where after that initial, will this work? Will, will the fans like people being recast? And Tintra Law's done such a lovely job of the third Doctor and... I got away with playing Ben. I think we're now in a situation where it can be recast again. Um, I think Ben now, Michael, Michael Craze will always be the definitive Ben, but I think we're in a phase now where Ben is a character that can be played by other actors in just the same way as the first Doctor is now a character that is played by other actors. William Hartnell is the definitive. He is the first Doctor. But we've had David Bradley. Heavens, even I've played the first Doctor, albeit um, for about two scenes in a, <laughs> in a Companion Chronicles, which no one should ever listen to because, uh, oh boy, um, <laughs> Peter Purvis and uh, his, his job is safe as the custodian of um, the first Doctor. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, go on. If, if they're going to, if they want to do Ben stories, absolutely give another actor a crack at it. It's a fun part. So you cope with being recast, okay? You don't mind? I mean, if I've nicked the job from someone else, someone else can nick me. No, that's a bit frivolous. Um, no, but I, I think it would be incredibly hypocritical of me as a as someone who was lucky enough to inherit this part um, to bristle about someone else doing it. No, I think it would be interesting. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, depending on how fans feel about it, because ultimately fans vote with their wallets when it comes to Big Finish. But maybe because I tried as much as I could to stick to Mike's approach, but inevitably there would be a drift, that the next actor might even be able to 
I'm not saying lose sight of what Mike did. I, I think that would be a mistake. But, you know, there, there might just be a chance to, to, to push it in a slightly different zone. You know, who knows? <laughs> did, did Annika ever tell you how she felt about your performance? I wish she was very sweet. I mean, uh, as, I, as I sort of intimated earlier, I think what helped was that I, I didn't come in with the attitude of, oh, this is my partner. Um, I, I think that would have been not only insulting to her, uh, I don't think it would have done me a lot of good either because, um, you know, there is, a, there is a dedicated audience. Uh, no one wants to hear that. So I think the... Um, the fact that I did do the research and I, and Mike was always my touchstone. I don't know what, what I do. Oh, okay. Let's see what Mike might have done as Ben in a similar situation. Was um, made, made her feel like I was serious about it and I was um, not forgetting the guy who did all the groundwork. <laughs> it's tricky, though, because you do, you do sort of have to try and avoid at the same time being a bad cover version uh, you know i'm not an impressionist that's not my skill i'm not someone who has a facility to accurately do other people's voices i'm an actor who tried to get close to the technical delivery of another actor just to provide a certain continuity but the impression can never lead the intention if the impression leads the intention the audience picks up on it. I think the, an, an audience is much more forgiving of maybe the times when my voice didn't sound like Mike's than they would have been if the acting, the intention in the scene fell flat because I was too worried about doing the voice. You, you, do the, you, learn, you learn the voice, you learn the approach, you learn the cadences and rhythms, but once the green light comes on, you have to play the scene for all its integrity uh, uh, and you are reacting to another actor. So you, to have this part of you disappearing into, oh, what do I sound like? What do I sound like? Do I sound like Mike? The scene's dead if you start doing that. And it's, it's an insult to the other actor in the scene as well, because you're not reacting to them. You're just, you're just conscious of how close you are to a voice. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that, that was an important thing, not to get too caught up. But Annika is such a good actor such a good actor and she gets all this so she got because in a sense she was doing a similar thing she had a poly voice which she finds like that but it's different to the voice she uses as a narrator you know so i felt that there was a there was a sympathetic um resonance there that uh, because she also knew that right i've got to find my poly voice but I can't let finding my poly voice dominate the scene because then it just becomes about actors doing voices and it should always be about the drama of the scene. I think that's the secret to successful recasting is that you're not going in to do an impression. You're going in to do a characterization. And that's, I think that's far more important is to get the essence rather than a sound alike. Unless, of course, you're John Colshaw, whereas he can sound like anyone. <laughs> yes, he's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, um, is it, I can understand why, you know, it's we've all done it. I remember years and years ago, the, they used to put, um, they used to listen to a lot of radio. Um, it's one of the reasons that I, I like radio acting, radio drama and radio comedy. They used to do reruns of Dad's Army 
the, the, the British comedy Dad's Army, but on the radio. And the way they used to do it in those days is they would record the television version and then they would all trot down to Maida Vale or somewhere or, or, or Broadcasting House and do the radio version. But I noticed that um, one of the characters was played by a different actor. It was all the other characters were played by the actors from the television. But James Beck, who had played one of the characters on the television, was obviously not available for the radio version. So a different actor played him. And I'm just as sensitive to anyone of going, oh, that's not quite right. So it's all about balance. You know, on one hand, I've got to not drift too far from my craze because the audience that we're, that we're doing these for want to feel as though that this is running parallel to the television era. They don't want to be pulled out of it too much. That, that sense of, I've just watched um, The War Machines. I'm now listening to the Yes Men and I want to feel that they're part of the same continuum in some way, even though one's on television, one's on sound. So you're trying your hardest not to uh, be so different technically that they feel pulled out of it but at the same time you're absolutely right it can't dominate uh, that moment because you suddenly realize there are other things that people are already making a leap on they're not seeing any black and white images except in their mind the music is done on modern synths not on not stock music from back in the day or um, you know chamber orchestra or whatever there's a narrator for the for the visual moment so people are already coping with a lot <laughs> so the last thing you want to do is then sound like dick van dyke when you should be sounding like michael Krebs. <laughs> coming soon from big finish productions inscape our guide and friend hear my plea save my children philip hinchcliffe presents doctor who the genesis chamber Good morning, Egypt City. Today, we celebrate as President de Rosa Jans renews his pledge to uphold decency and citizenship in our beautiful colony. You brought these in here. Look at her. The girl's no better than a savage. What could be better than a savage? I'm sorry. That identity is not recognized. You are a threat to the colony. What are you, Doctor? Explain yourself. Have you been listening to me? Your village defences wouldn't stop a current bun. Now get out of my way. I'm going to find Lena. Warning. All city systems are under attack. Please remain in your seats. Presidential override. Open up. Louio, stop it. We should never have come. through time and relative dimensions in space. You have no right, no right, no right! Doctor, your history is alarming. Big finish. We love stories. You actually uh, did uh, an audio with Tom Baker that was not related to Ben uh, Ben Jackson, so uh, tell us about that. Oh, yeah, that was, um, that was great fun. I, I think it was a... Uh, I think it might have been a kind of well done. The, the, the Ben stuff seems to have worked. Because I do remember when I did the first one, I was told, because it was so early on in this whole recasting thing, we're not sure if this will work. 
this might be it. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see. And thankfully, it, I think for the very reason that you mentioned earlier, you know, that the, the, the script was good. So people were happy to hear more. Um, but I, I was given this sort of reward, which was, do, do you want to play another character? Would you like to work with Tom Baker and Lou Jameson? I was like, yes, I'd love to work with Tom Baker and Lou Jameson. Um, and it was the most wonderful experience because it was in a completely different studio than any of the ones I was used to. Uh, we, it was out in the country near where Tom lives. So it was lovely surroundings for a start. And it was the height of summer, of spring going into summer. And it was a six-parter. So we were there for longer. It took about a, a week to do. It was a bigger cast. Um, and I was playing, I think it turned out, I was playing one fairly sizable role, uh, a smaller role, and, and, and two little uh, blink and you miss them roles. So I had plenty to do. It was a wonderful experience. And the thing I remember most of all was my ribs aching the week after, because Tom Baker's really like that. And I just, I just was doubled up most of the time. But he's so funny. Um, but he really, really um, was, was quite magical to work with. And I think one of the reasons is he's, he knows the part so well. <laughs> He, he's created this version of the Doctor and he's played it on and off. You know, he, he knows what he's doing. It's this wonderful ability to sort of riff on the scripts and then make the suggestion, do, we, do you want me to, do you want to have that or do we want to stick absolutely to the writing? Now, he never rides roughshod over the writing of the, the script writer, I'm not going to say that, but he's very good at pinpointing maybe some things that will work simply because he knows his doctor inside out. And I, I remember two instances. Uh, one was he had to fly on the back of a giant reptile, something that can be best achieved on audio. And uh, oh, um, I don't know if I can do this because we haven't been introduced. <laughs> so he got the, the, the reptile named and we'll give her a name, um, which was great because then it set up a, a another little thread that ran through the rest of the story was the references to this giant reptile who was then a character in its own right. Um, and he was very good at just amending certain lines to make them perhaps a little bit more inventive or unpredictable, um, which was really, really interesting to just, he's, he does it all on the fly as well. He's a very fast mind. And Louise Jameson, absolutely delightful to work with. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a great cast all, all around. Um, the only thing I regret about it is two days before I was due in the studio, I got a terrible cold. And the, the, the only upsetting thing about the whole experience is I, I can hear it. I can hear how bunged up I am playing more the, the president's son role than the other role, um, which we a few more days passed. So it, it ebbed away a bit. But yeah, that, that bugs me. Anytime I've ever heard that, it's like, oh, you're so bunged up and it's, you can tell. <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> I, I, I noticed that I've seen online that you've you've done conventions. Um, I don't know how many you've done with Tim Trelaw. I saw one that you did with Tim. Fans are often not backwards in coming forwards with expressing their opinions. Um, did you ever have much resistance to... 
uh, recasting uh, in your in your convention travels because I know online there are still quite a few fans who say, "Oh, that's a recast. It's it's not the same. I'm not going to buy into it." Um, yeah, yeah. Did no, you get I much completely... of that during conventions? To tell you the truth, I readied myself for it because, in a way, doing a convention is almost a PR exercise. <laughs> um, you're there as an ambassador for the the show and. and a big finish as it as it would have been in my case I, I mean i never i never went hunting i mean lisa bowen did actually say don't 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 go to message boards i thought i don't even know where they are <laughs> i said don't go to message boards. and and you know just and i said okay but i never experienced anything but real positivity fans are really sweet at conventions and um and I prepared myself t- twice over. One, oh, they're not going to like it because it's not Michael Craze. And two, they're just going to wonder who the hell I am. You know, who's that guy at the end of the autograph row? We don't even recognise him. Um, but far from it. Um, just absolutely lovely. And to the extent where I've got to know some people, either because I saw them repeatedly at conventions, or, you know, I've got to know them on Twitter or something. And it's so positive. Yeah, I've never had any trouble. I think it comes down to the quality of the stories. If the stories are good, people accept you. I think if the stories hadn't been, you would have more problems. It probably helped a great deal that I was cushioned by having so many uh, original actors around. Fraser, uh, Annika, they almost created a kind of atmosphere of authenticity. Because Fraser had his own challenge as well, because he was playing the Two second doctor. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> he was playing the second doctor. He completely knew as well that um, okay, I've got to got to make sure that this is this is right. I just wish you could have all seen him do it because one of the, one of the, I mean it would spoil the illusion, I guess. But one of the things I really liked about watching Fraser do the second doctor was that he would physicalize Patrick Troughton's mannerisms, do it. Which is actually what all good voice actors do. It's not just a, vo- a vocal performance, but and and none of it was recorded separately. He would do the flip between the Doctor and Jamie in real time. But it was fascinating to just watch him through the one moment. He's like, the hands come up, and now Jamie, uh, uh, Polly, Ben, uh, and then he then it changes for him to go into to Jamie, and it just flipping between, and it's like. You paid double for this. <laughs> yeah, I think he thinks he should have been paid double for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it's a really thorough um, performance. Uh, Fraser, we don't get many Doctor Who actors down here in Tasmania. We've usually got to go to the mainland to, to see them when they come. But Fraser that did come be. down here a few years back and uh, got to see him here uh, in my home state. And... Um, he did do that on stage while he was talking to us. He was just doing a, a monologue and and uh, he did that switching backwards and forwards. You are absolutely right. It was amazing to watch. And it's lovely because having spoken to him over many years, such an affection between him and Patrick Troughton, it, has, it carries with it not only the fact that he's technically good, but it's such a lovely tribute as well. It's sort of very heartwarming because, you know, they had such a, great relationship such a great relationship i think it's something he's very proud of that he's able to play this part that his great friend created so what's next for elliot chapman <laughs> um well i'm perhaps ironically for someone who's 
having to be seen about his his knees. <laughs> I've got a little problem in my knee. I'm actually about to do um, an audiobook all about marathon running. <laughs> I'm literally doing that on Monday, um, which is just hilarious. Yeah, um, sometimes I get these quite um, random requests. Uh, so the, the the publisher of this said they heard me do something else and said, "We think your voice is perfect for a book about marathon running." You think, "How can you tell that from a voice?" But mine is not to reason why. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm going to be in uh, studio next week. It, but the, the delight in doing that is, for many years, I did a lot of fiction, so a lot of uh, audio books uh, that that were novels, and, I, and for some reason, can't say why, I've been getting a lot of non-fiction recently. But uh, the delight is suddenly I become a, a bore on subjects I hitherto knew nothing about. I now know a tremendous amount about running. <laughs> so where are you hoping to be five, ten years? What's the plan? Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, oh, I can't think in those things. I, I, thinking in a 24-hour cycle is about as, 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 uh, as comfortable as I, I, I can be. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I do sort of feel a bit, at, um, as I sort of explained earlier, um, a bit of a uncertainty with acting. I mean, it might be something I uh, go back to. The, the, the difficulty, I think, is uh, although it's wonderful when you are acting, I mean, that is the delight. That's why we do it. Um, the, the stuff around it can be quite wearing. You know, that, that sense of, you know, you complete a job and it doesn't matter how good the job has been for you, you know, how many months you were on it, you, you are sort of back to square one. And, um, and uh, that, that, that can be like, whew. and there are certain jobs now where um, I'd be sort of reluctant to do for the simple reason that I'm not 25 anymore. So it's things like, I, I, you know, doing big tours, you know, I, I, I like my family life and I don't want to be up for eight to 12 months plus um, doing a big theatre tour or, or something. But um, yeah, that's still sort of up in the air. The nice thing is because I still get a healthy amount of offers to do audiobooks and um, voiceover work and sitting in a cupboard talking to myself is absolutely fine. Um, I, I'm able to keep going, but um, yeah, I'll see. There might, there might come a point where it's like, I'm so, so uh, missing being on the stage or something that um, I'll seek it out. But uh, as for five years or 10 years, oh God, my terrifying thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for your time. We've really appreciated meeting you and having you on. And, uh, yeah, thanks for your stories. Oh, bless you. That's very kind of you. Thank you for letting me uh, drone on. <laughs> There's something out there. Something very wrong. The more I look, the more I can't seem to see. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, The Home Guard. This is leading Seaman Jackson, arrived as we were setting off. Have we uh, met before? I don't think I've had the pleasure, sir. Well, it's not only the doctor. With the war and everything else, well, it's not that easy to pin down to anything particular. But nothing round here feels right. Doctor, what are you going to do? I'm sure something will occur to me. Doctor, no! Don't 
such things are killing our people. We can't possibly win. He likes to be known as the Master. You two know each other? Oh, I'm old. Big finish. We love stories. So there you go. That was a trailer for The Home Guard. That was the last early adventures that Elliot Chapman was involved in that we spoke about uh, briefly there during the interview. What did you think of that, Philip? It the, was The great. interview, not the story. No, I know. <laughs> it's great time talking with Elliot. He's got a good sense of humour. And I just love the, the way he threw himself into the role and, and what it all meant. Yeah. For a few years, but now he's, you know, kind of stepped back and moving on with life and other things. So it, it, it's obviously a part of his life. You know, he can compartmentalise his life, and he's managed to do that. Would it, so would it be compartmentalise? Oh, that's probably the word. <laughs> oh, in, I'm in lockdown. Be kind to me. My, my brain's not working anymore. Oh, I know. I'm stuck with all my family all the time. <laughs> I know. I've done quarantine a couple of times myself during this whole thing. It's funny that. It's pretty much the rest of the country except for me. Well, Where keep, I am. keep hoping that you stay safe. Yeah, I hope so. So I'm Shut just looking at the news, waiting for, waiting for cases to start Case appearing here. So how about we have a little talk about our recommendations? And uh, whose turn is it, Philip? I think it might be... Uh, I don't know. Whose is it? I think it's yours. <laughs> I think it's your turn. What have What's you got to point? recommend for us? There's a pattern. I'm sure there's a pattern. Anyhow, um, I've been listening to one of the audiobooks that's come out recently, The Ark of Infinity. Uh, by Terence Dix. It's read by Jeffrey Beavis, so not someone you'd is a natural link to the show, really. I mean, Jeffrey Beavis is it, of course, in terms of master, but he just had, does have the most wonderful voice, and he plays a really fantastic Omega. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a great read, great story, and um, yeah, enjoyed it. Is that it's, a is that an Uncle Terry novelization? It is an Uncle Terry book. So it's indeed new cover by um, Andrew. Oh. oh, mind blank. Skeletor? I've got the right that, sound, that sounds right. Yeah. Anyhow, we'll, go with a, it. It, we'll go with it. Yeah, it's a new it's a new cover rather than the awful tacky photo that they had in the original Target novel. It's a bit, they've got a nice oh, painting. Oh, that's, that's what gave them their charm. Oh, those photos were awful. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about Target novels. What about you? What have you been listening to, Dwayne? Well, I am going to recommend... A, a an album, a CD. Since we were, since we got a very very interesting tangent there uh, with Elliot talking about German krautrock from the seventies, he was into the electronic side of things. But I did touch on a band called Can, which was a bit more percussive, not quite so electronic. Well, not electronic at all, really. So I thought I might recommend one of their albums, and. Who, who could I go with? There, there was four albums by Can that were done in the 70s featuring Damo Suzuki, the Japanese lead singer. And uh, I might go with uh, the old classic, Targo Mago. Um, have a listen to that if you want some, if you want to get a taste of what Elliot and I were rabbiting on about uh, during that interview. Yeah, have a listen to Targo Mago or Tago Mago, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, by Can. Check it out on Spotify. Um, see if you like it. It's kind of groovy. It's groovy stuff. I'll have a listen this week. <laughs> I bet you will. 
<laughs> Thanks, Philip. Thanks very much for uh, for organising that and uh, for for sharing this uh, this one with me. We will be back next week. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. Don't know why I said that, but it sounds it just came to my head. So thanks, Philip. See ya. Be see you, Dwayne. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye, Olifars. You've been listening to the Sirens of Audio episode 69, A Sailor's Tale, with special guest Elliot Chapman and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Next time, we cross over to Blake 7, where our special guest Stephen Greif joins us to talk about his life, his career, and reprising the role of Space Commander Travis for Big Finish. Theme music by the Jackpot Golden Boys. Email address is sirensofaudio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favourite podcatcher or both. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and leave lots of comments on our YouTube channel. We love them. Join our Facebook group by searching for the Sirens of Audio on that platform. Tweet us at Audio Sirens. And leave your own audio clip of feedback at anchor.fm slash Sirens of Audio for us to play on a future show. And whenever you're feeling nostalgic for the good old days of black and white, even if you were born in the age of colour, even if you were born in the age of the internet, just let your mind go back to that magical time anytime. Because audio drama... RAW!